Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. Hope you had a healthy, happy, and safe time over these last couple of weeks since I released the previous episode. Solo this week, just wanted to do a brief recount of some of the best film and TV books that I encountered during the previous year. This list is by no means authoritative, doesn't cover all the books that I uh, encountered or read, but these are the ones that I thought stood out the most uh, during the course of a year's worth of rabbit hole reading and watching in the film and television minds. First up, Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. This is a new book, newish book by Glenn Frankel, who's written really good books on films like The Searchers, High Noon, and now Midnight Cowboy. I'm hoping to have Glenn on the podcast in March in connection with the paperback release of his book. This book is a dense book. It's a, it's a read that is not just sort of a juicy, salacious uh, telling all or making of, although there are all of those details that you would want. But what Glenn Frankel does really well in his books is place films within a cultural context, and that deepens the reward of both reading about the films and re-watching them. This book was really particularly fascinating because both leading actors, Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, uh, both of whom were very new to their careers at the time this film was made, you know, of course now they both have somewhat more difficult public personas. Dustin Hoffman famously was caught up in the Me Too movement. Some of his past behavior has come under scrutiny. And John Voight, of course, is a diehard Trump supporter and seems to enjoy baiting and taunting the left on social media and in his various videos and has a bit of a more complicated public persona than he used to. But during the time that this movie was made, you're really treated to these two actors before all of that kind of began to happen to them and because of them. So this book made me want to go back and, and rewatch Midnight Cowboy, which I did, and got a lot out of it. So I really recommend that if you're looking for a good book about the making of Midnight Cowboy. The second one is The 50-Year Mission, The Complete Uncensored, Unauthorized Oral History of Star Trek, The First 25 Years. It's a bit of a loquacious title. The two gentlemen who wrote this book have created a bit of a cottage industry doing oral histories of a variety of different things. And I read, read this in preparation for my Star Trek episode that I recorded with my friend Rick Brown. I read this. I read the second 25 years. Uh, I read another book by two Star Trek producers. I really, really went far down the Star Trek wormhole, and I found it very interesting not only for just Star Trek stuff, if you're a Trekkie, but in terms of the business, the television business uh, of the time and the way that Star Trek surfed many changes throughout how TV shows were produced and marketed and sold and distributed, there's a really interesting history here about all of that stuff. And if you're kind of a TV business nerd like I am, I think you might find some of that stuff interesting and useful. And if you are a writer or showrunner who is responsible for putting together a staff or a writer's room particularly, I think you're going to want to read both volumes of this because there is a step-by-step what not to do 
laid out here for, for showrunners and staff writers. There's a lot of cautionary tales, and there's a lot of interesting minutia, to me anyway, about the rules, quote unquote, of Star Trek. In other words, you know, you couldn't have conflict between the main characters, which seems obvious to fans of the series, but when you think about it, here are your three or four main characters. But off limits, except in examples when we have bizarre space things happening which lead to evil Kirk or evil Spock behaving not as their characters would, the first rule that Gene Roddenberry set down for all Star Trek writers, which remained in effect throughout almost the entirety of certainly the original series and many of the subsequent series, was that there was to be no conflict between the main cast members. So when you take that off the table, you read this book and you realize how difficult it really was to write for a show like this. And it gives you a new appreciation for some of those things. Third up, and highly recommended, is Mark Seal's new book, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, The Epic Story of the Making of the Godfather. Now, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you may have heard my interview with Mark about this book, which was my last available episode prior to this one. And I really enjoyed this. This is a breezy, really fun read, but it really gives you something new about something you thought you knew everything about. So the making of The Godfather is a very well-covered subject, and Mark Seal has taken this on from his unique perspective because he was able to interview Robert Evans and has access to many of the principals and protagonists. And I found this a really fascinating book, and it also made me go back and watch Godfather 1 and 2, but not 3, Peter O'Connor. Also, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a novel. This is Quentin Tarantino's novelization of his filmic masterpiece, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For anyone who listens to the pod, you know that I've been obsessed with this movie. I think it's Tarantino's probably best film. Tough to judge between Jackie Brown and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for me, but those are by far my two favorite Tarantino movies. And for any kid of the 70s, this book, in classic Tarantino fashion, is an homage to the Ballantine trade paperbacks that we all had of the era. From the cover to the photo section in the middle with the black and white photos, to the ads, real and fake, which kind of bookend the paperback. It just, it's a, <laughs> you almost wonder, did they spray this with sort of that musty paperback scent? That's how much it transports you back. And in great detail, he goes into greater detail about the backstory of all the characters that you meet in the film. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was more than just a kind of tacked on addition to the film. I thought it really added something to it. Uh, I saw that my friend John Walker posted on Instagram that he got uh, a hardcover version of this, which includes an entire script for Bounty Law, uh, which is the show that DiCaprio's Rick Dalton character goes on in the movie and has the great scenes with the child actor. And so now I'm going to have to get the hardcover as well. Charles Grodin died in 2021, and that caused me to go down a rabbit hole of reading a lot of the books that Charles Grodin wrote. I think I was aware of them, but I never sort of encountered them. So I, I had to order a few that were out of print and these were a great read because it gave me an appreciation for Grodin kind of as a, a wry and witty observer of Hollywood and all of its rituals and mores and less a kind of 
who's who and who was where TikTok of his career. These are just really great showbiz anecdotes, old school showbiz anecdotes. So if you loved his turn on the Carson show or the Letterman show, he's got so many great anecdotes in these books and his quirky and interesting personality comes out. And he's also a self-lacerating type of person who recounts as easily times when his jokes fell flat as much as he recounts the times they landed particularly well. So I really enjoyed this. And these, this was the book, We're Ready for You, Mr. Grodin, in particular, which is a collection of anecdotes about all of his talk show appearances. This book inspired my Grodin tribute episode of the podcast, which is episode 96, if you're scoring at home or even if you're alone. Next up, Robert Altman, The Oral Biography. This was a book that reminded me that I think my favorite type of nonfiction writing is an oral biography. This book by Mitchell Zukov is a great biography that sent me revisiting a lot of Altman's films with a newfound appreciation for the often fascinating and frustratingly cantankerous genius of Robert Altman. This book really has fantastic reminiscences from all of his cast members. Brilliant and uncompromising, and the interviewees seem to channel their inner Altman, and they cut through the bullshit, and they get to the heart of the matter, as was typical of the director himself. And this also inspired an episode of the podcast, so check that out when you can. Uh, my next pick is a graphic novel by famed noir comic masters Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Their book, Fade Out, just blew me away. It is a post-war Hollywood blacklist, dark CIA ops, heavy drinking Hollywood cautionary tale. Uh, it is, it's dark, but it has that beating heart of the best noir. And I was particularly blown away and captivated by the color work of the artist Elizabeth Breitweiser, whose coloring of the drawings here is so much a part of what makes this book amazing as the words and the drawings are. That kind of got me down a little bit of an interesting rabbit hole where I became fascinated about the role of the color artist in graphic novel and comic preparation. This is a brilliant graphic novel executed at the very highest level it's a singular work and a collective effort. And if you dig old Hollywood and deep, deep noir, you can't do better than to lose yourself in the world of Fade Out and all of its real life references and characters. Continuing along in the old Hollywood theme, I really also enjoyed Carla Valderrama's book, This Was Hollywood, Forgotten Stars and Stories. If you're a fan of her Instagram account, at This Was Hollywood, you'll be familiar with the type of pers person and story that she's drawn to. This is a wonderful and constantly rewarding book that finds offbeat and arcane stories of the once was and the never were oddities from Hollywood's golden age. And it's one of those books where in looking back, we kind of find ourselves today. And in so many of these essential profiles of forgotten people and episodes in Hollywood history, the complex messiness of the industry and the moral struggles and the personal and professional failings and triumphs will open your eyes and send you running to your Amazon Prime playlist. My next book is not a book that I think came out in 2021. None of these all particular are, by the way. Uh, but I've long been obsessed with and a fan of a 
1978 film called Rockers, which my high school friends and I used to watch religiously in the mid to late 80s. It is a seminal and legendary underground reggae film that's kind of a much more indie version of Jimmy Cliff's epic 1972 film, The Harder They Come. Uh, this film features a who's who of deep reggae stars and a literally insane amount of marijuana smoking. We follow Leroy Horsemouth Wallace as he tries to supplement his income selling records from the back of his motorbike, which gets stolen and leads Leroy and his friends on a Robin Hood-esque mission to recover the motorbike. And uh, it, it, it has a very, very specific and unique charm. If you can find it and you haven't seen it, it's really worth checking out. The film was made by a white Greek bohemian photographer and filmmaker named Ted Bafalukas. And this book called Rockers is a photo and essay kind of memory written by Ted Bafalukas before he passed away, which has a lot of behind the scenes photographs and a lot of his writing both before, during, and after the making of the film. And he's got a really kind of quirky and fascinating life. It, it traces from time in New York City in the 60s with the Velvet Underground and Robert Frank and Jessica Lange and the Man on Wire uh, artist Philippe Petit through the challenges and dangers of filming rockers in Jamaica. It's an incredible book filled with period photos and great detail and uh, really worth checking out. I want to mention a few non-film books that also kind of moved me. First up is a book called The Mud Club by the author Richard Bach, who was a doorman at this famed downtown lounge club in my favorite era of New York City, the middle 70s and beyond. Not a film or TV book, but it certainly has a cast of characters from, from film and television. And it's got everyone from Basquiat to John Waters to Debbie Harry to Debbie Mazar to John Lurie. It's sex, drugs, rock and roll, bleeding into day. And it's a far above average memoir of, I wouldn't say a misspent youth because the author is still fortunately with us and able to look back from what I now believe is a sober perspective. But he gets at the lure that we can have to review those good old bad old days as special and full of meaning, even as he kind of often punctures that balloon by not shying away from the personal cost to himself and many other denizens of the bar and the club, many of whom unfortunately did not live to tell the tales that Richard Bach so wonderfully does in this book. Now, of course, I wouldn't be me without some crime fiction. The classic noir from author Richard Stark called The Score, which his dead-eyed protagonist, Parker, conspires to rob an entire town. It's a completely audacious setup, and Stark plays it out to the beat-by-beat -beat conclusion brilliantly and grippingly. It manages to never kind of lose its, its grounding in reality at the same time, which makes it all the more chilling. So I, I went on to read you know 15 or 20 of the Parker books after that, but this one particularly stood out. And then a series that I just devoured over Christmas vacation. William McIlvaney is a Scottish, was, I should say, I believe he just passed away, was a Scottish author and poet. And he wrote a trilogy of crime novels 
two of which I believe were written in the, the later 70s, and one of which it seems like was completed with the posthumous, after William McElvaney passed away, posthumous help of another one of my favorite crime writers, Ian Rankin, also a famous Scottish crime writer and author of all the Rebus novels. So the Laidlaw trilogy is widely credited with kicking off what's known as Tartan Noir, which is, of course, the crime novel subgenre specific to Scotland, populated by people like uh, Ian Rankin and others. But Laidlaw is a brilliant, tortured, humanist, detective chief inspector. It's gritty, it's realistic, but it's also flighty and fanciful. And these novels are really distinct and worthy. And I've been thrilled that the world of crime fiction has such gems that I can still stumble upon and discover uh, many, many years after they were originally released. I want to give a particular shout out to a new series that I discovered in 2021. And in the often brilliant way that social media can sometimes bring people together rather than drive them apart, I was very glad to form uh, what I believe to be a mutual admiration society with the author Joseph Schneider, whose two books in the uh, Tully Jarsdell series, one is called One Day You'll Burn, and the second book is called What Waits for You. And these are mysteries that are set in contemporary Los Angeles with a really unique lead character who's a kind of out of place police officer detective in the Los Angeles Police Department. He comes from a very non-traditional background for a police officer. He has two dads. One, one dad is of sort of Persian extraction, and both of his parents are sort of disapproving because they are intellectuals and academics, and they believe that police work is more of a participation in an oppressive system than it is uh, a chance to do any real good in the world, but Tully Jarsdale believes differently. It's very rare for me to read a debut novel that kind of does something new in this genre. And that's always a kind of sit up and pay attention moment for me. And that's exactly what, what happened when I read One Day You'll Burn. There's a third installment coming out soon. And by the way, Joseph, if you're listening, you still owe me an appearance on the podcast to discuss Peter Bogdanovich's Targets, which you turned me on to. These books feature a real LA at times. It's reminiscent of films like Jackie Brown. And I think that's because Schneider grew up in Los Angeles and has a more particular appreciation for kind of the real, more fringe elements of the city than the more cinematic ones sometimes. But it's also filled with movie lore and some very gripping violence and deranged killers, really high quality crime fiction with an above average intellectual quotient. So both of these books are very well worth it. And you'll be prepared when he releases the third book later this year. Okay, another graphic novel recommendation and another instance where I was lucky enough to be able to make contact through Instagram with the author and share my appreciation for his work. This is Penny, a graphic memoir. Again, not a film or TV book, but I completely loved this very unique graphic novel by Carl Stevens that brilliantly, hilariously, movingly brings to life the, I say imagined, but who am I to say whether he's imagining it or channeling it, the imagined inner life of his cat, Penny. The genius of the drawings here 
which Stevens captures so perfectly feline behavior moments that any cat owner will immediately recognize as the deeply weird stuff that cats do. And the book travels far into Penny's uh, mind as she navigates her human uh, companions and has almost philosophical musings and meanderings. It's the kind of book that I still find myself picking up off the shelf for a page or two, and I always feel better when I do a really unique and great book. So if you're looking for a gift for the cat lover in your life or for yourself, pick up Penny, a graphic memoir by Carl Stevens. I think you'll love it. Okay, another shout out derived from Instagram, uh, which I would say alone of all social media has proven a bridge to so many interesting and valuable mutual appreciations that I have with people whose accounts I really admire and follow and learn from on Instagram, which is pretty much the only social media place I think you could say that. Ernest Lupinacci's graphic novel, The Godfather Gang, in Hollywood, everything is personal. This is a really unique way of telling The Godfather story. I mentioned my Mark Seal interview and his great book. And this book covers some of the same territory, but in using the uh, graphic novel format and with illustrations by Alex Ogle, this is just a great kind of different way to get at kind of a noir take on the making of The Godfather and the business of the movie. And all the regular characters are here, uh, as well as Joe Colombo Sr. and, you know, a lot of the underworld characters. So it's a really, so far, inventive and interesting way to approach The Godfather story. And I'm grateful to Lupinacci and his great Instagram account for reminding me to uh, pick this up again. It's also on Kindle Unlimited, so you can read it for free uh, on your Kindle Reader. The Kindle Reader app has a comics navigation function, which is really useful when you're looking at a graphic novel. So check out The Godfather Gang by Ernest Lupinacci. In Hollywood, everything is personal. And another book from an Instagram mutual appreciation society that I would be remiss not to mention is Ken Harris's book, The Pine Barrens Stratagem, from the case files of Steve Rockfish. Ken has taken it upon himself to reimagine the Rockford files. Now the character of Steve Rockfish is in uh, Maryland and is embarking upon a new mystery. And a lot of what you love about the Rockford Files, a lot of what I love about the Rockford Files is contained within here. And he's done a great job to tackle this character and try and present him in a new way. Uh, this is also available on Amazon Kindle. I look, I look forward to hearing more from Steve Rockfish and the other cast of characters represented in the book. So that's just a few books of the year that I thought were of interest. And I recommend picking up any and all of them if you're interested in film and TV books. The only other thing I wanted to mention on this brief episode was that one of the things my family and I were looking forward to was the HBO Max Harry Potter reunion special, which I believe premiered on the streamer on New Year's Eve. Uh, we watched it last night. My 10-year-old is completely obsessed with Harry Potter, listens to the audiobooks, it must be 100, 150 times uh, at this point. It gives her joy and glee, and I love the way it kind of undercuts her otherwise preteen presentation of being too cool for school. 
she geekily loves and is obsessed with all the detail of these wonderful books, as am I. And it's been a joy to rediscover the books and the films uh, through her eyes. And I think we've talked about before on the podcast that I think those movies represent one of the more interesting and noteworthy attempts by a film studio to get books right that mean so much to so many people. You know, if you lived through the era when those books were first being published in the early 2000s, you know, let's not forget, as I haven't forgotten, these were occasions met with thousands of people lining up around bookstores on release night for the next book in the series to come out. Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. They were a phenomena of reading, the likes of which really hasn't been seen uh, before or since. And the amount of people to whom these books mean something is so tremendous because they're most often encountered by children or the parents of children who are reading it to them or people like myself who were adults at the time but captivated by young adult literature of this style. And how often does it happen that Hollywood takes a book and transforms it into something worthy of the magic contained within the covers? And in the Harry Potter films, the producers made so many really smart and important decisions early on and all through the process that allowed these films to inhabit a space almost equal to uh, the literary space occupied by the books. So the special was going to be interesting to me because these three primary actors, uh, Rupert Grint, Daniel Radcliffe, and Emma Watson, are now in their early 30s. They're between the ages of 31 and 33. And they're obviously getting together for what feels like the first time since they filmed these movies, uh, since they were 9, 10, 11 years old, going through their teenage years, you know, a 10-year window of their lives when they filmed these movies. And so for me, the, the special is viewed on a couple of levels. One, I'm sort of aware of kind of what it quote-unquote has to be, in terms of fan service, because it's primarily and foremost a fan service vehicle. And by that, I mean, we're not really getting real here, per se. We're getting some of what we want, which is to watch these three actors not veer too far from the characters they portrayed in the films, but to reminisce about their time together and about the making of the films. And while close readers of film history or of the making of these films will no doubt be left a bit wanting for some of the more, I would say, interesting details and kind of business aspects of things that go on behind the scenes. You know, you do get the story of their involvement and uh, casting, which is particularly fascinating. There are so many incredible behind the scenes film clips and video clips of of uh, the process of discovering and finding these three actors and the chemistry that existed between them. And it is jarring almost to consider how perfectly cast it was and how much these three children uh, were protected by something that's not known as a protective mechanism, which is the Hollywood and studio machinery. And I think, you know, there have been uh, gossipy or 
other sort of revelations about difficulties that some of the actors have had subsequent to the filming of the films. I think Daniel Radcliffe has been pretty open about the fact that he developed a drinking problem subsequent to filming Harry Potter and uh, by all accounts, by his accounts, has conquered that and become a sober person. So kudos to him for surviving that. I think Rupert Grint, uh, by and large, has avoided any of that type of issue, but um, he seems sort of curiously guarded in the special in a way that I'm not sure how to read. Uh, Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe are very present and very open as far as it goes. And that's what I mean, that it's not, uh, you get the feeling there's a more interesting making of story yet to be told. Perhaps they're just still a little bit too young at 31, 33 to really have the distance from this experience to be able to comment on it in any real or meaningful way. Um, you know, we hear from all the directors, uh, but we don't hear the reasons why, you know, uh, Chris Columbus didn't come back for the third film, which turned out to be because he was just exhausted after filming the first two. And he remained as a producer when he brought on Alfonso Cuaron for the third film, which I think is the best and most interesting of the Potter films. Uh, but all of the directors are there, and there is a renewed sense of appreciation for the genius of the who's who of the British acting, you know, aristocracy, really, that appears in the Harry Potter films. And much of the secret of the film's success has to go to the fact that you have these incredible A-list actors in terms of talent in the UK who are occupying all of the adult roles in the film. So of course it's interesting and of course it's watchable and nostalgic and I highly, highly recommend it, but it scratches the surface. It doesn't really go beyond that into ways that I think would be at least interesting to me, but maybe that's just my own uh, sort of uh, attitude and approach to it. So check that out if you get a chance, if you have HBO Max, it's worth seeing and it might drive you back to the films. So that's it for now. Stay tuned for more from Full Cast and Crew in the weeks to come. And thank you as always, always, always for listening and responding to the episodes. As you know, I'll never run ads here. All that I can ask is that you tell someone if you like the podcast, like those shampoo commercials of the 70s and 80s. And they'll tell their friends and so on and so on. Please tell two friends and maybe they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.